I invite you to turn in the Bible to Colossians chapter 3, where we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. The American writer Oliver Wendell Holmes, Sr., who lived from 1809 to 1894, once said this, Some people are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. Oliver Wendell Holmes was not the only one to say that. In 1977, the theologian Johnny Cash recorded a song called No Earthly Good. It went like this. Come heed me, my brothers. Come heed one and all. Don't brag about standing or you'll surely fall. You're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. If you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood. So heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The gospel ain't gospel until it is spread, but how can you share it where you've got your head? There's hands that reach out for a hand if you would. So heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That is the conception the prevailing notion in the world that Christians are so focused on pie in the sky, by and by, what will happen in the afterlife, that they're of no use in this life. C.S. Lewis countered that when he said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, there are two imperatives or commands and they both exhort us to be heavenly minded. So I invite you now to follow along as I read from Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For Christ, or when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So in these verses at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, there are these two imperatives or commands. Prior to this in Colossians, as is often the case at the beginning of Paul's letters, he deals with what could be called the indicative, what is indicated by Scripture, what is true about God and us. When I meet with the preschoolers in chapel, I hold up a Bible and I ask them, what is this book? And they say, the Bible. And then I ask them, can we trust the Bible? And the answer, 
yes, we can trust the Bible because it tells us the truth about God in us. What Scripture indicates about God in us is the truth, and then the imperatives, the commands, flow out of that truth about who God is and who we are. So once we know the truth about who God is and who we are, the imperatives, the implications, flow out of that. So the two commands in this passage, number one, in verse one, is to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And in verse two, the second command is to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So the command of scripture in in this text is to have a particular mindset, to have a frame of mind, a perspective, a worldview, namely that is shaped by the truth of who God is. The mindset we are commanded by God to have is a heavenly mindset. God commands us to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on things that are above. But we know the objection. Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Another way of saying it is that Christians are so obsessed with the world to come that they're clueless and helpless when it comes to this world. The prevailing notion is that Christians are so focused on the next life that they're useless in this life, that they're so consumed with pie in the sky by and by, with speculating on the streets of heaven and the gates of heaven and the clothing of heaven and all those things, that they're out of touch with what is going on in this world. And so Christians are often portrayed as people who are stuck in the 1950s and 60s, for those of you who remember Ozzie and Harriet and Leave It to Beaver. They're just out of touch with this present world. Some say that the followers of Jesus are so focused on heavenly things that they're ignorant and incapable of doing anything to help with the immediate issues of the day. However you identify those immediate concerns, whether you think the primary concern is environmental and climate concerns, or homelessness and hunger and human trafficking, or the coronavirus that's broken out in China, that's the perception that Christians are so concerned about the next life that they're useless in this life. However, I believe it can be demonstrated that the ones who are most responsive in such situations are those who are focused on eternity, who have an eternal perspective on life. And they want people in this country and countless other places around the world to know the love of Jesus and in in real tangible ways now and for all eternity. So if you and I were not followers of Christ, we would have no motivation to care for suffering people throughout the world. Our only motivation would be self-preservation, looking out for number one, self-gratification, and self-indulgence. Now, it may be true that some who are identified with Christ are clueless and useless in this world. But in most churches, the problem is not that people are so heavenly-minded but that their mindset is often no different from that of the world. If you took a survey of what is important to those inside the church and outside the church, I suspect the answers would be very similar in many respects. We could make a list of things that would be viewed as important by both those who profess faith in Christ and those who do not. 
Some of the things on that list would probably be as follows. The impeachment trial, climate concerns, immigration, what's going on in Iran, in Russia, in China, maybe the Super Bowl, March Madness, basketball, college basketball, or an upcoming spring break trip, or spring training in professional baseball, or the latest video game, youth athletic events, soccer, t-ball, baseball, volleyball, track, an upcoming prom, shopping for that new car when the weather warms up, or spring programs at school, or graduation, or summer jobs and vacations. All of those things are the things that people who profess Christ and those who don't care about. They're all part of this life. And none of those things that I've just listed is evil or sinful in and of itself. But any and all of them can capture our hearts and cause us to be consumed with the things that are on earth rather than the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So what is true today was also true in the early church. We know that that to be the case because Paul wrote to the Colossians and he told them to set their minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So apparently the problem is nothing new. It's the same problem we face today. Too much focus on the things of this world and not enough focus on Christ, the things above. So when we come to Colossians 3, it's like the center point, the central uh, theologically and structurally point in this letter. We've had two chapters before it, two chapters including it, coming after it, and it introduces the transition from the indicative, what is indicated or true about God in us, to the imperative, how we're to respond and how we're to live in light of the truth. So not only does the Bible tell us the truth about God and us, it tells us how to live in light of that truth. And this imperative, this command, always flows out of the indicative of who God is and who we are in Christ. So in this passage, we have several indicative statements. We see them in verse 1. You have been raised with Christ. You think of yourself as having been raised with Christ? You were buried with Christ in baptism. If you are trusting in Christ, you were identified with him. And I don't take that to mean the baptism of water, but being baptized by the Spirit, being united with Christ by faith. You were buried with Christ and raised with him and seated in the heavenly places with Christ, as Paul also says in Ephesians 2. Another indicative statement, true statement in this text is verse 1, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's significant. The place, the location at the right hand, that was the place of honor, the place of glory, the place of power and authority. And Jesus is given that place. And he's not standing there. It says he's seated at the right hand of God. That means he's accomplished the work that God gave him to do, the work of salvation. When he finished the work of atonement, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. In verse 3, we see another indicative statement, you have died. That's important to recognize. We think, I'm alive. I'm not dead. This text says you died. We saw that in chapter 2. You died to the elemental spirits of this world. Something happened when you came to faith in Christ. 
Your old life disappeared. It was taken away. It was nailed to the cross. You died. And now your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a little illustration you can do with your hands and your index finger to remind yourself of that, that your life is hidden with Christ. You can take your index finger. You can all do this with me. Hold up your index finger. This is your life. Your life is hidden with Christ. Here's where it gets tricky. Take that out of hand. In God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. A dear friend of ours, a dear woman in Christ, taught that to my wife years ago, and we've used that as a way of remembering this truth. That is what is true about us. The significance of that, that you have died, the worst is past for you. No matter what you encounter today and this week, you can know that the worst is past for you. You don't have to fear anything that you face this week or this month or next, this year because the worst is past. You died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then in verse 4, there's one more indicative statement. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we see throughout Scripture that Jesus appeared once for our salvation. He came and lived and died and rose again and ascended to heaven. But he will appear a second time. And when he appears that second time, you also will appear with him in glory. There's an amazing truth there that we need to somehow grasp by God's grace. That whatever your life looks like now, whatever you think your life is, it is nothing compared to what it will be when Christ appears because you will appear with him in glory. C.S. Lewis talked about this that we will be tempted to worship other human beings when we see them in glory. You will reign with Christ. If you trust in Christ today, if you persevere in faith, you will reign with Christ for all eternity. You will shine like the sun. That is an amazing truth. But we don't see it yet. Your neighbors don't see it. Your family members don't see it. When you look in the mirror, you don't see it. But you see it when you look into God's word. This reality that our life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not too long ago, we worked our way through 1 John. And in chapter 3, it says that, that because Christ will appear, we don't know, or we are God's children now begins by saying, Beloved, look at the love that God has lavished upon us, that we are called God's children. And it goes on to say, not just called, but so we are. We are, in fact, God's children if we're united with Christ by faith. And it goes on to say, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's the same truth as right here in verse 4. So those are all indicative statements of the truth that God wants us to know, that he wants us to grasp by faith, and then the imperatives flow out of that. So seek the things that are above. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is, and set your minds on things that are above, 
not on things that are on the earth. So we've talked about that pejorative phrase about Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good, but in fact, those who have been the most heavenly minded, those who have been the most focused on Christ have been the most earthly good. And just one example would be George Mueller. And there's a slide that I would like you to see a picture of the first orphanage house. George Mueller lived from 1805 to 1898. He was born in Germany. His father wanted him to be trained as a theologian in a seminary in Germany so that he could earn the lucrative wage of the state church ministers. But at 10 years old, he was a thief, a liar, and an immoral young boy. But eventually, a Christian came alongside of him, began to pray for him, and he trusted in Christ and was saved and delivered. And he wanted to be a missionary. But the mission agency that he applied to would not allow him to do that. And so he continued to seek the Lord. And eventually, he went to Bristol, England, and he founded this first orphan house at Ashley Down. Over the course of his life, he cared for more than 10,000 orphans, 10,024 to be exact, and they kept meticulous records. He started 117 Christian schools where over 120,000 were trained to know and love Jesus Christ. Those who are most heavenly minded are those who are most earthly good. And so the command in this text is to seek or pursue the things that are above, to seek it, to go after it, to chase it, to track it down, and then to set our minds on or to preoccupy our minds with things above. What's your mind preoccupied with today? Maybe what you're going to have for lunch, or where you're going to go for lunch, or what you have later on today or this coming week. It's easy for our minds to be preoccupied with many things, but Scripture's command is to set our minds on things above. It's the same word, the same form, as is in Philippians 2.5, where it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So this is talking about a particular mindset, a particular worldview or frame of reference. It's not speculation about what heaven will be like, but it's meditation on Christ. And we know from 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 18, that the things that are seen are transient, but the unseen things are eternal. So we're to focus on those things that are eternal. So the negative restatement of this command is, do not set your minds on things on the earth. Well, what are the things on the earth? 1 John 2 tells us that all that's in the earth, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, that's it. And it says the world and its desires are passing away. We can sum up all that's in the world with those three things, the lust or desires of the eyes, what we see with our eyes, the lust or desire of the flesh, what we long for to satisfy our fleshly appetites, the pride of life or the pride in possessions, that sums up all that's in the world, the worldly things. In Matthew 4, where Jesus was tempted by the enemy, the enemy said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you bow down and worship me. Lust of the eyes, all the things you can see. 
And he said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread, the, the lust of the flesh, satisfy your fleshly desires. And then, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. You won't get hurt. It's the pride of life. Those are the things of the world. Don't set your mind on those things because the world and the things thereof are passing away. The things that are seen are transient. So the command is to seek after, to set our minds on the things that are above. And then we're given reasons in this text. First reason is verse, the first half of verse 1. Because you've been raised with Christ to new life. You have this new life, the new birth brought about by the Spirit of God, where you were born again by faith in Christ, has produced a new life. And so set your mind on the things that are above. You are a new person, a new creature, a new creation in Christ. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things above because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's above. He's in glory. So set your mind on these things. Another reason that's given to us is in verse 3. Because you died with Christ. You're no longer the person that you were. We're not yet who we're going to be, but by God's grace, we're not who we were. And so because you're not who you were, because you died with Christ, that life is over. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that characterize your former life. Another reason, because you're identified with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that's true in this life. Right now, you don't see all that your life will be. Your neighbors don't see it. Your family doesn't see it. But because you're hidden with Christ in God. But one day, your life will be so identified with Christ that you will appear with him. And then you'll shine like the sun and everyone will see it. What are the means to seeing this come about? I'll give another illustration here is that of pin oak trees. I don't know if you know what they are. I've got a picture of some pin oak leaves to share with you. When I was growing up in Ralston, Nebraska, we had a pin oak tree that we planted in our yard and it grew as we grew. And recently I was back there visiting my older brother and I drove past that house and this tree is monstrous. It is huge. But the pin oak leaves, they have these distinctive U-shaped lobes and what's also interesting about the pin oak trees is that when the rest of the trees, deciduous trees, lose their leaves in the fall, the pin oak holds on to theirs, and those leaves only fall away in the spring when the new growth begins. In chapter 2 of Colossians, there were those who were encouraging people, encouraging these new believers to adopt Jewish practices like festivals, annual festivals, and new moons, monthly festivals, and the Sabbath, weekly observances, to take on these practices. And then there were those who offered regulations to help them overcome sin, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. But those things could not work and will not work. They're ineffective in subduing the flesh. The way that we die to sin is when God begins by his grace to produce new life in us. When that new growth happens, the dead things fall away, just like those pin oak leaves. 
And so our focus is very important. In John Bunyan's classic story, The Pilgrim's Progress, he told of a man who had a muckrake in his hand. Now, those of you who are familiar with horses know what a muckrake is. It's that tool that you use in the horse's stall to separate what you don't want in the horse's stall from what you do want in the horse's stall. And this man with the muckrake in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress was forced to look down. That's all he could do was look down. He was looking at the straw and the sticks and the dust, separating those from what was not to be in the stall. And all the while, there was someone holding a celestial crown over his head, but he couldn't raise his head and see it. Our focus is extremely important. I was communicating with Rich Hartzell about this, and he was talking about how he taught his children to drive, and I remember the same thing, that when teaching your children to drive, you tell them to keep their eyes on the road, because if they see a, a herd of deer off in the field and they start to look that, way the car starts to go that way and so the counsel is the car will follow your eyes so keep your eyes on the road we go and we travel in the direction that we're looking so we need to keep our focus on the things above on Christ and his glory our goal then is to cultivate a Christ-centered worldview in Matthew 6, we read this morning to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to pursue this, to go after this with all that you have and all that you are. In other words, to see everything and everyone through the cross of Christ. One more image to share with you, and this is an image of the prayer chapel window at where I went to seminary in Pasadena, California. This was up on the second story of a building, and there were a number of times that I would be in there praying and reading my Bible and looking out through that window, and you can't see them through that window right now, but you can imagine the palm trees that lined the mall of the campus and the people walking through the mall of the campus, and it may have been through that window, I'm not sure if it was there or not, where I first saw my wife from a distance. And at the time, I thought maybe she was only 16 years old because I knew there were missionary families that came with their children and I didn't know how old she was and so I did not pursue a relationship with her but she saw me wearing a Bethel College shirt one day and she came up and said is that the school that's in Minnesota and I said yes it is turns out she'd gone to Augsburg College across the uh, the river Mississippi River in Minneapolis we had been to the same colleges finally met out in California but as I was in that seminary chapel and looking out through that window, it occurred to me that God wanted me and wants all of us to have perspective where we see the world through the cross of Christ, that the, the cross of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again in glory, that that informs our worldview, that we see everything through the cross, through the reality of who Christ is, the one who's seated at the right hand of God. What's the result of this mindset, of this focus of seeking these things? Well, one, it will give you victory over sin. Whereas those old taboos that were offered in chapter 2 of Colossians, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, they were helpless to do anything. And in later on in chapter 3 next week, Lord willing, we'll see in verses 5 through 11 some things that we're to put off. But the only way we can put them off 
is by having this mindset, by seeking the things that are above, and then those dead things will fall away. So it gives us victory over sin. Another result is that it gives us grace and power to deal with life's challenges. So when the car won't start on one of these cold mornings, or when you find out that you've been terminated from your job, or you get a devastating diagnosis, or you experience a miscarriage in pregnancy, any other difficult thing that you face this week and this day and this month of your life, having this focus, seeking after the things above, will enable you to experience God's grace and power in the midst of those challenges. If you really trust that Jesus is the greatest treasure, that he can satisfy and will satisfy your deepest needs, you can see those other things in their proper perspective. And it will produce good fruit, the kind of fruit that we'll see later on in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, to clothe yourselves then with love above all things. In Psalm 1, the person who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord, he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Its fruit does not fail. So what's the exhortation to us, the thing that we're to take away from this? To seek after the things that are above. How are we to seek them? It's not a passive seeking. It doesn't just happen to us. Proverbs 2, verses 4 and 5 says, Seek after it like silver and search for it like buried treasure. If you believe that Jesus is the greatest treasure, go after him with all of your heart. And God will give you great joy and great peace and great power in the face of life's difficulties. He'll give you power over sin and he'll produce good fruit so that maybe one of you will start something that impacts a number of people to the degree of George Mueller's life. May God do that in and through our lives. May he give us such a passion that we would seek after him like silver and search for the things above like buried treasure. Then we will find all that God has for us. Will you pray with me? Lord, we recognize that there are things in this earth that consume our thoughts and our attention and even our affections at times, but we want to be more heavenly minded. We want to be so focused on you and who you are and what you've done and who we are in Christ, that our life is hidden with Christ in God, that we've been raised with him, that we've died with him to the elementary spirits of the world that we're a new creation in Christ. So Lord, help us to set our mind on these things and to seek after them like silver and like buried treasure. And Lord, would you get the glory in and through our lives. Would you give us greater joy in you and make our lives attractive for the gospel to the world around us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.